thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. And today, I want to pick up with the questions a listener had sent to me by email a couple of weeks ago that I think are probably questions many of you have, which is why I wanted to do a couple of podcasts on those questions, so that it's uh, perhaps a little bit more like a dialogue and an exchange, although, uh, you know, he asks and now I'm going to just answer. But I really pray that today will provoke a lot of uh, thinking beyond where we tend to think. And to be honest, um, a lot of what I'm going to share today is really uh, fresh and and new for me as I've considered this listener's questions, uh, along with some of the things that I've been reading over the years that kind of pull together in a very interesting way, and I, and I hope you will find it helpful today. So let me tell you what his questions are, and like last week, I, I may mention one of his questions and then give a quick answer, but I want to give a, an overall sense of my answer to a multitude of his questions today. Here's how his questions began. How do we do this, namely restore a biblical cosmology in our culture? What would that look like with particulars? We all want to know what is it we can and should do. Okay, we've got this problem. We, we, we no longer seem to have a biblical cosmology. What do we do to restore it? And his next question gets to more particulars. Are there laws we can start enacting to lay or relay that foundation? Are there cases that need to be brought? Decisions by the Supreme Court, legislation enacted, laws repealed, etc. Then this was an interesting next question. Are we trying to change laws, create new ones with this foundation? Now, let me just kind of stop here in response to these questions. Yes, there are laws we can start enacting that would lay or relay that foundation. They're going to have to be worded in particular ways, otherwise that won't happen. But yes, there are. And there are uh, lawsuits that need to be filed. There are laws that need to be enacted and defended in front of the Supreme Court. Again, they need to be grounded in the right way to allow for uh, biblically sound, biblically sound cosmological arguments to be made. Otherwise, the opportunity is lost, right? But we're not really so much trying to change laws, although there are laws that we've enacted we need to change, but we need to restore the foundation to law. Now, what I'm trying to get at a little bit by that comment is is the idea that we tend to think that there is no law except that which we enact, and I've spoken to that before. So it's not that we need to enact new laws as much as we need to um, declare, articulate, and um, act on the basis of the laws we already have. For example, the transgender issue. Uh, 
I would have argued that we don't need a new statute saying a doctor can't uh, apply uh, medicines or uh, uh, subject a child to uh, uh, surgical procedures that if effectively cause the child to be sterile because under common law, our bodies are supposed to be protected from harm, from being able to function as God created them to function. So we didn't need a new law. We just needed to enforce that one. The only change in the law that we might need is that by statute, we've said, well, in cases of medical injuries, you need to bring the lawsuit within a year of knowing or realizing that you've been injured by a medical procedure. So with respect to transgenderism, that limitation on filing a lawsuit for damages needed to be extended. But there was already a law that would keep a doctor from causing a child to be sterile who's otherwise healthy for the purpose of making the child sterile. We didn't need a new law, you see. So it's not sometimes so much that we need a new law as we need to uphold and defend the ones that are already there, which are found in the common law. But, of course, because we've enacted some bad laws, those laws in time need to be repealed. So I'll give you a quick example of what that would look like. The Supreme Court said that, well, if states are going to have statutes that that issue marriage licenses only to a male and a female, those statutes are unenforceable and you have to issue a marriage license to any two people, regardless of their sex. What a state could simply do is to say, well, actually, a grown man and woman who are competent to enter into contracts, to hire a lawyer, to sell a house, to uh, rent a condo for the weekend, uh, they're competent to enter into a marital relationship. And so we're just going to repeal the statute. And uh, people that get married, they can prove their marriages by any number of ways, bringing in documents, bringing in witnesses, go file an affidavit at the courthouse declaring that they've married each other. But if, if the statute's going to be interpreted in a way that denies God's created order, denies the truth about man and woman, well, we'll just repeal the statute. And see, the Supreme Court can't make you pass a new statute. So that would be an example of saying, well, we, we really already had a law about marriage. It was just a question of how do you prove it, and we decided the best way to prove it was to get a license, but you've now perverted Supreme Court, the, the meaning of that statute, so we'll just repeal it, and we'll provide other means for people to prove their marriage. There. Go away. And that's actually what we're trying to do here in Tennessee, and trying to talk to a few other states about doing it. But, uh, um, you know, I hate to say, a lot of people just don't get that point. It's kind of like, well, how do you get marriage if there's not a license? It, it's because we've forgotten that marriage is a gift, an ordinance of God that we enter into by making certain kinds of promises. And the state's only interest at that point is trying to help you prove it so that your duties that are owed to each other in that relationship can be enforced. So anyway, I wanted to comment there. Now, uh, he goes on to ask the question I talked about last week a little bit. Spiritually, shouldn't we be calling for more prayer meetings in churches and et cetera with this, this idea of restoring a biblical cosmology and to our law and our culture as part of the theme and discussion? He says, I would assume so. But what about politicians calling for this? Legislator prayer meetings with this theme. Maybe even biblical cosmological proclamations, like proclamations of fasting or thanksgiving that happened early in the country. And as I commented last week, certainly we've got to do a better job within the church 
to educate uh, Christians about the nature of law, the foundations of law, how they have been eliminated from a Christian perspective by our United States Supreme Court, and what we can do to begin to restore those foundations without at the same time, as the writer mentioned last week, actually undermining our positions, which we do all the time. So, so we, we really do need a large educational effort, and, and I want to come back to that in just a moment. But a legislative body could issue proclamations. So I remember, um, maybe it was 1997, 1998, when I was in the state Senate, one of the uh, senators brought a resolution urging schools to post the Ten Commandments so students could study them, read them, and so on and so forth. It didn't require schools to do it. We didn't want to get into a lawsuit over it. But, but there was a big controversy over it, and the state Senate passed it, and I think the House passed it. And, and um, you know, so certainly uh, legislators could, could file joint resolutions. They don't have the force of law, but they can certainly evoke public conversations And those legislators, though, better be ready to defend what they do and know how to defend what they do. Otherwise, it it could be disaster. It's like going out to witness and you've never read the Bible, but you're excited about Jesus. I'm not saying that that's always a disaster, but um, if you're going to be a public official, you better understand what it is that you're doing and saying, okay? And I don't know that there are enough legislators who could vote for such resolutions who would be able to articulately defend them. But anyway, it's, it's certainly a good idea, and I've been asked by a person in another organization that's a worldview organization about the possibility of putting something together like that at some point and offering it to states to put forward. So that's good. But one of the things that came to my mind as he talked there in his question about the church and teaching in the church ties into another question that he had that I think is really, really important. This is, this is what he writes. There's a lot of debate about Christian nationalism and I see some that I disagree with, but some that I agree. The ones I disagree with are the ones who think of it just can we get a law passed against this or that. As long as it seems Christian, we've won. We just need Christians in office. Okay. But, he says, other Christian nationalists seem to agree with you that at least in some form that it's more than just a law or someone in office. It's a comprehensive worldview influence in all of culture, law, arts, churches, with an understanding of law based on God's design and natural law. So he posits this question. Would you distance yourself from those Christian nationalists, or is there a discussion to be had? Not the weird radical types that worship flag and country, but those that see the gospel in light of discipling the nations. Yes, there is a discussion to be had, and it's being had, but I don't, I don't know that a lot of what I hear gets to the very heart and depth of things that, to be honest, we need to get to before we're going to have any restorative progress in 
politics. And here's what I mean by that. I want to turn to a couple of scripture verses today and then some historical documents to get at what I think about Christian nationalism. First of all, this verse has been bouncing around in my head for oh, the last year or so. It's in Hebrews 7.12, and it's speaking about the, the changes as a result of Christ, the new covenant, Christ being our new priest as opposed to the priest that we had under the Mosaic polity. And the author writes this sentence, for the priesthood being changed, of necessity there is also a change of the law. And, and we see that happen through Scripture, right? We go from the Ten Commandments to a change in the way we approach law, speak law, couch law, describe law, set forward law in the book, for example, of Proverbs, right? It's not a Ten Commandments of Prohibitions, but it's, it's moved on to wisdom, to knowledge, to prudence, as you might recall from the episodes I did uh, using clips from Dr. Jonathan Burnside's lectures at the Hale Institute. And so he's saying when there's a change in the priesthood from the Levitical priesthood to Jesus, there's a change in the law. Now, not the moral law, obviously, but there is a fulfillment of the law. Christ is the end of the law, the telos of the law. He fulfills all of the law. All of the law rises, you might say, from the do-nots to the, this is what I love. I want to do more than than not violate prohibitions. Okay, There's a full blossoming of the law and the love for the law. But I think there's still a statement here that relates to culture. That where there's a change of the priesthood, there's a change in law. And so as our culture in America and around the world has removed Christ from his throne, God from his universe, man is no longer a priest to God as was intended to be by Adam. Adam was to take the creation and and work with it in such ways as to offer it back up to God as a as a as a sacrifice to God to, to the, all the potentialities of the creation. And in fact in in 1 Corinthians 15 we say that that when when everything's finished we Jesus will will take that kingdom and he'll bring it to the Father as in an offering. So so people are priests. That is our God-given cosmological role, and we will be either priests unto God or priests unto idols. And the idol might happen to be ourselves. Our idol might happen to be America. Uh, but, But we will be priests. And with the change in the priesthood, there is a change in law. So our laws have completely changed. They've gone off their biblical foundations and away from a biblical cosmology because God is no longer a part of our cosmos in our view. And we have changed ourselves from priest unto God to priest unto man. And so the law has become man-centered and man-glorifying rather than God-centered 
and God-glorifying. So as you can see, we have a huge change to make here. It's not just a matter of changing this law or that law. For the law to be restored to its proper biblical cosmology, there's going to have to be a change, I believe, in the priesthood. And that begins with the church. Now, I'm going to share another verse of Scripture that's been in my head for several years now, and it began to tie into this today, and it's in Psalm 25, verse 14. It says, The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. And I think it's very interesting that he says, I'll show you my covenant. It doesn't say, I'll, I'll show you what the new rules are that you shouldn't do, you know. So uh, we didn't have chewing gum back during the Mosaic polity, so don't uh, chew chewing gum or you can chew chewing gum or date the girls who do, whatever it might be. All the silly little rules that we've often come up with in our, in our ways to try to be pious and holy. He says, no, I'm going to show you my covenant. Now, that ties into the episodes we just went through that we have lost as part of our biblical cosmology the, the understanding that covenant is central to how God works in his world. Okay. And so God's covenant purpose, as I said a couple of episodes ago, is to reconcile all things back to God. We're ambassadors of reconciliation. And it is to join together in Christ as the mediator, all things in heaven and earth in one. Ephesians 1, 10, I believe it is, or verse 11. And if our labor is not directed towards that, then our labor is in vain, and, as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that work which is not built properly on the foundation of Jesus Christ as the one given to us as the covenant head of the new race of Adam, well, it'll be burned up. It won't endure into the ages. Okay? And so we're seeing a lot of Christians who, who are trying to do things by law, by changing laws to rebuild the United States without realizing if if I'm not operating as a priest and trying to restore the cosmology that is true to the covenant, then I'm not carrying out my priestly functions as a person in law or government the right way. And they'll have no effect. Now, here's what I want to mention about this uh, historically, because those thoughts may be new to some listeners. I, I hope they're not. But I'm reading now from a book called That You May Prosper by Ray Sutton, a pastor. And he says this, and, and I read this book, oh, six, eight years ago, maybe. Um, but as I finished that series on the covenant and was thinking of that scripture verse in Psalms, um, and our, our priesthood, our service is royal priests, kingly priests, right? As Adam was sort of a, a representative king over creation. Um, God, the heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but he's given earth to man, as the psalmist said. I came back to this in Sutton's book uh, just the other day. 
He writes this, We should never forget that covenant was the single most important theological idea in early America. Not only the Puritans, but virtually all Protestants came to the New World, to America, right, with this concept at the center of their theology and practice. Congregationalists, Presbyterians, Anglicans, Continental Reformed groups, and independents were children of the Reformation. Federal theology, as covenant thinking had been called on the continent, and notice that, federal theology, representative theology. Christ is our representative before God. We are God's representative on the earth to the rest of creation. We have a federal government. Why? Because it represents the states and the people on certain domestic policies. In many ways, the dawning of the Reformation was a revival of this ancient theology. Slowly, it seeped into European and British cultures, but not deep or fast enough. When these diverse yet similar Protestant groups came to America, they implemented what many Europeans had wanted for centuries. Their rationale for applying the covenant was simple. In other words, their, their rationale for thinking covenantally about their government was simple. Here's what he says next. The members of the Godhead related by covenant. Now, if you'll recall, we talked about that from A.W. Pink's book and the everlasting covenant between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So he's saying the members of the Godhead related by covenant. And since heaven is a model for earth, as the Lord's Prayer says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, well, man is supposed to organize all of his life according to the same structure. People from England and the continent were ready for this kind of society. They came to the New World because it offered what they had never been able to find in Europe, a society based not on status but contract. Now, I'm going to talk about that in just a moment because he's, he's taking that word contract from a book by Perry Miller, but I'm going to come back to it. Their theology mandated it, and they acted on it. Friends, anybody that tells you that theology is not important to social order, to law, and to civil government does not understand the biblical theology. His biblical theology is off. Now, again, uh, the word contract was used, and I want to be very careful there. The Puritans did not believe in the social contract theory that, that originated with, with people like Locke and Hobbes and Rousseau. I've done podcasts on them, too. It is, it is sweeping through Americans today that the only form of right government is one formed by contract. And they're essentially buying into the godless thoughts on the way political authority and authority is, is delegated by God that, that belong to guys like Locke and Hobbes and Rousseau, okay? And in fact... Ray Sutton writes with respect to the quotation, which was from Perry Miller's book, The New England Mind. He says, Also, the Christian colonists did not believe in a social contract theory because their view of the covenant forced them to have a high view of authority. God establishes institutions through his authority, not consent of the people. 
For example, those coming to the New World from England all sought charters from the king. They were not anarchists striking out on their own without accountability, or I would say without authority being over them, granting them authority. Okay? So, what's important here is to appreciate, I think, that that we as Christians who want to see our our nation become more Christianized in, in the way it does things and thinks through things, we have to begin to repent of thinking we're going to bring that about just by passing new laws or repealing old laws, though we should try to pass good and right laws, and we should try to repeal bad laws. The the overarching effect that they look for, that we would be a righteous nation, is going to come because we in the church have recovered the concept of covenant, and we are living it and working it out among ourselves and as it's worked out among us and spreads among us, it pushes out into the culture. And that's how it's restored. Now, interestingly, that's been done before. So it's not impossible, and we shouldn't despair. I'm going to read to you uh, now a passage from Harold Berman's book, Law and Revolution Two, subtitled The Impact of the Protestant Reformations on the Western Legal Tradition. And he makes this statement about the English Puritans and the Puritan Revolution in England that was the foundation for our country. He said this, The Puritans believed that God willed and commanded what they called the Reformation of the world, and they emphasized the role of law as a means of such reformation. Okay, Law is a moral tutor. The law needs to be worded right. It needs to be defended on the right grounds. But as we do those things, it becomes a moral tutor, and that's, that's part of my answer to um, our listener who asked the question. Yes, there are laws that we can pursue, but we need to pursue them in the right way. An additional element in the Puritan belief system that strongly affected the development of English political and legal institutions was its emphasis on the corporate character of Christian communities. Anglo-Calvinist Puritanism was essentially a communitarian religion. It emphasized the existence of a divine covenant under which the congregation of the faithful was to be a light to all the nations of the world, a city on a hill. So, you see, there was a time when our concept of covenant theology, that that I am covenanted to God, but but in that covenant with Christ as the head, I'm covenant to all the members of the body. It is communitarian. We are not isolated monads, but we are a unity in Christ as our head. And that needs to be restored because that headship is what was called federal theology and representation. In other words, civil government represents God on earth. Just as a priest 
would represent God to the people with respect to, in the Old Testament, the sacrifices and the rituals. And that's why Calvin said that the magistrate needs to be careful in the way he makes his decisions because he is to reflect and they should be able to see a better picture of the image of God in the magistrate by the way he conducts himself and in his rulings and in his judgment and in his justice. So, you see, in, in part, what I think is happening with Christian nationalism is we're trying to turn our country into a godly place by law rather than in a covenantal fashion and and we're trying to have power without being priests and we are to be a royal priesthood. So I want to come back to this listener's questions, his, his other questions, again next week into another communication I recently received. But I hope you found today helpful. We have forsaken our role as priests unto God in our culture, and we've substituted new priests, and and the law won't change back as it ought to be until the priests of God are back in their rightful places with respect to lawmaking and policymaking and legislating. And, and we're not going to do it by force. We're going to do it by priests under the covenant because that, the fulfilling of the covenant of God and the government of God will be accomplished by the zeal of the Lord of hosts, not by our zeal alone as kings who don't act like priests. Well, I hope you'll join me for next week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.